I always got pulled back into sport, both because I loved to run, and even if I wasn't able to train two or three times a day anymore, and I was not winning very many races, I loved running hard, and the, the glorious improvisation of running with a group of people. I loved that. I loved that. So I couldn't stop. And I realized that uh, nothing meant more to me than making sport accessible to other people. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm Kate Van Buskirk. Last week, we conducted a live conversation with Canadian running icon Bruce Kidd. This chat was hosted by Lynn Bork at the Runner's Shop in Toronto, Canada's oldest independently owned specialty running store. A small group of us gathered, masked and spaced apart, to celebrate Bruce's new memoir, A Runner's Journey. This is the live recording of that conversation. I want to thank you all again for coming, and I, I really want to thank Lynn and everyone at the Runner Shop for hosting. It's so exciting that we can be in person again. I see a lot of familiar faces, and just to be able to uh, enjoy an in-person event is a real treat um, after what the last two years have been. So thank you all for coming out, and we're all here to celebrate this wonderful gentleman to my left. You know, I think that his accolades and his biography could go on for about half of our evening. So I'll try to keep this uh, concise. But I will say that by way of introduction, Bruce is an Olympian, a Commonwealth Games medalist, and a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto in the kinesiology, the Faculty of Kinesiology and Phys Ed, and a celebrated author. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Canadian Press's Athlete of the Year, the Lou Marsh Trophy and inductions into the Canadian Olympic and Canadian Sports Halls of Fame, as well as a recipient of the Order of Canada, amongst many other accolades. Um, and of course, the reason we're all here tonight is to celebrate the release of his ninth book, his memoir, A Runner's Journey. Please help me in welcoming the formidable Bruce Kidd. So, Bruce, we're here to talk about your book and A Runner's Journey, for those of you who um, have only skimmed it so far and not read it in its entirety, is absolutely beautiful. It's, it's poignant, it's insightful, it's educational, and it's funny, and it's really deeply personal. So I guess right off the bat, I'd like to ask you, as I said in my introduction, you've already written eight books. This is your ninth. And I'm wondering what the inspiration was to write a memoir and why this felt like the right time to share this story with the world. Well, first of all, let me say how honored I am to be here and how grateful I am to everyone who's come out tonight uh, to, uh, to celebrate this book. I'm very grateful for that and to tell running stories. And I'm particularly honored to be here in the runner's shop uh, I'm sorry to tear up, but uh, the mention of the Longboat Island Run reminded me that the last time I had a, I, I really saw and had a conversation with Dave Ellis, uh, who was the founder of the Runners Shop, was when we ran a 10K together uh, at the island, and we just shot the breeze for the whole uh, time, and I no idea what our time was, but it just went by so so quickly. Uh, this is an institution in Toronto for 
I'm not sure how long, Lynn, uh, 50 years. It has um, helped popularize the sport. It has helped uh, many runners uh, uh, enjoy uh, much more rewarding and longer careers than they would have imagined. Uh, it has popularized healthy training and, uh, and all the, the, the different forms of running, not just the road running, but cross country uh, and the, the, the track indoor and out. So um, it's a great honor for me to be part of this foundational uh, institution in the Canadian sports scene. As I think you know, I had another life long ago when I was a successful runner and really a household word uh, in, in, in Toronto and, and in Canada. And a number of outstanding sports writers approached me about writing my autobiography. You don't have to do anything. You could just uh, meet once or twice and, uh, and then we'll write it for you. And I was very wary of that. How long have we got? I don't want these stories to be too long. But um, I, I was was very wary that somebody else would tell my story uh, f- from there and, and call it my own. And I, I felt very strongly that that was dishonest. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I worked my way uh, through university financially by working as a reporter at radio station CFRB during the summers and one day a week uh, during the school year. And one of the newsmen, veteran newsmen that I worked with was Ron McAllister, who wrote Marilyn Bell's autobiography without ever once talking to her. And it was only when uh, the, the edited galleys went back to the publisher that he called her up so he could uh, legitimately say that I spoke to Marilyn about this. I hated that. Um, but the idea of an autobiography was in my mind ever since then. And as I went through various phases of my life and my career, and I reflected on the changes in Canadian and international sport, and, uh, and worried about how some of the things that were important to me were quickly disappearing from the scene and how little the, my students at the university and the Canadian sporting public knew about a history that was not a history to me because I'd lived through it. This was not the 19th century. This was Toronto in the 60s and 70s. I, I decided that I would write my own story. And when I left my last position uh, at the University of Toronto and had some accumulated leave, I felt I had a block of time to enable me to do that, and I, I did. It took me two years. Writing uh, a real autobiography uh, is not for the faint of heart. You discover things about yourself that you'd wished you'd never uh, looked at again. But there are some rewarding surprises as well. I wanted this book to be uh, a witness to the remarkable changes in Canadian sport and uh, Canadian society over the last 60 years from the perspective of a runner, and that's what I tried to do. So you've divided this memoir into three sections, and the three sections are the education of an athlete, the education of an activist, 
and my struggle for Canadian sport. And so in that first section, you speak about the influence that your parents had, um, not only on you and your siblings as budding athletes, but also in helping to kind of shape the trajectory of what would become, I think it's fair to say, your moral compass. Maybe you can tell us about those early years growing up in East Toronto with your family and how you got into running and how this love affair came to be. Well, I hope you read the first chapter. I've been told by several people that it really captured what Anglo-Toronto was uh, in the 1950s. Uh, I grew up at that time. I fell in love uh, with sport during that time. I discovered politics uh, during that time. And I was very fortunate to have two remarkable parents who uh, steered my moral compass, who opened the world to me, who uh, encouraged me to try anything everything and anything I wanted, and who uh, were fighters in their own way for an independent Canadian society, for a more equitable Canadian society in the vocabularies of uh, the 40s uh, and, and, and 50s. And, um, and, and in many ways, you know, I, I haven't fallen very far from the tree. One of my friends asked me to come over to sign a book the other day, and she told me a story about one of my mother's uh, colleagues teaching at Seneca or Ryerson, and uh, and and Marilyn mentioned my, you know, uh, Bruce's book, and and uh, and this woman said, uh, "You don't mean Bruce, you mean Margaret's son," <laughs> and 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 that's my my mother was a tough lady. She um, she fought for people. <laughs> it's funny why why I'm so full of tears tonight. But uh, she stood up for people, uh, and she she was indomitable, and she gave all of us all of us the courage to follow in her footsteps. Uh, she believed in education for everybody. She believed in opportunity for everybody, and she gave us this tremendous sense of confidence. Not that we'd win, uh, but we had the right to try. And, uh, and that's really all you need. So you were involved in a number of different sports growing up, and I know that you said your parents encouraged that. But you found running, and it sounds like fairly quickly it became something that you knew was going to be in your future, and you learned to kind of focus in on that a little more. I, I know that there's a story in, in the early parts of the book about it, you starting running on a dare and having uh, someone challenge you to a 50-yard sprint where they were running backwards and you were running forwards. And I believe that you were a little humbled in that experience, Bruce. <laughs> and it's a great story of motivation for how we can find uh, inspiration to keep running. But the other thing you really talk about, and you, you just spoke to this a little bit, was Canadian identity and nationalism and your early relationships with those concepts. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about that. And I think it's kind of crystallized in the story about the uh, Knights of Columbus indoor meet in Boston in 1961. Can you share that story with us? Well, we live in a society of hyphenated identities. I grew up with two parents who called themselves Canadians. Uh, and they were very proud of that. And they, they tried to create institutions that's, that were created by Canadians in response to the um, 
the ambitions and the conditions that we had in this society. And they deeply resented the, the waning British influence and the growing American influence. And if there was anything that they bred in us, it was this fierce sense of we can and should do it ourselves. And I, I ran a lot of races in the United States, and uh, I was under enormous pressure to uh, attend university in the United States uh, on, on, on an athletic scholarship. And uh, it was conventional wisdom that any intelligent athlete would do that, better facilities, better coaching, better racing opportunities, much larger crowds for, for your meets. And, and I resisted that because of my upbringing. But I thought I should look. And so I was recruited by everybody. You know, when I came to write my memoir, at one point I started f worrying that the stories I'd been telling for years uh, might not quite be true, and I'd get into my boxes of materials. And I collected everything, which made this uh, uh, fairly easy. And when I would get into my boxes of materials, I'd find that, in fact, I was exaggerating a little bit in some of my stories. <laughs> I would tell people that I, I got 20 legitimate offers for athletic scholarships for the United States, at all the Ivy League, at uh, UCLA, USC, and so on. But when I got to my boxes, or and when I got to my boxes, I found documentation of all 20 of those offers. I decided to, to, to simplify it, not spend the, my entire grade 13 in uh, weekend trips for campus visits, and I would I, I would look at the best university in the United States, which was Harvard, and the best uh, uh, university in, uh, in Canada, which then is now, uh, was the University of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, what was amazing about this, uh, and I went down for a recruiting weekend, and I, Kate, I'll, I'll try to keep focused on this, but it was an amazing it was an amazing weekend. The scholarship was sponsored by the Friends of Harvard Track with endowments that had begun in the early 20th century. I got a tremendous insight to how those amazing Ivy League endowments were created and, and, and what they could do. And on the Friday, they flew me into New York and they took me to the New York Stock Exchange and they, they showed me how wealth was created, an early introduction to uh, the economics of finance capitalism. And they one of the things that just blew my mind, they took me to dinner in their office building. And I had, I mean, we went to restaurants in the east end of Toronto to have grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> it was the finest lunch or dinner I'd ever had in my life. And this was just part of their regular uh, way of, of operating. So it was an entirely different, uh, you know, world. And, uh, and they and the people in, in Boston talked about with, with JFK just having been elected to the White House, the world was their oyster. 
and they had so so much disdain for the little backwater that I came from and they 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 felt they were doing me so many favors in pulling me out of out of this so I ran this race it was an incredible it was an incredible race for me uh, in in those days, the best distance runners were in their 20s or even 30s. And the two favorites for this race were the 31-year-old Peter McArdle, the best American, and the 37-year-old uh, who was a British world record holder. At the time, and American distance running was not going anywhere. And f- for the most part, uh, the, the, the best college and adult runners were, were older athletes from uh, the UK and from Australia and New Zealand who'd been recruited uh, to run for them. And, and in fact, Dave Ellis was an example of this. Uh, you know, Dave Ellis came to Ontario as a young man, uh, became a very successful runner, and in his probably his late 20s or early 30s, was recruited to Eastern Michigan University on a scholarship. And from there, and the courses he took in business administration, he created a shoe and and running equipment business that became the runner's shop. Uh, Many of the other top runners in the United States at that time were, were men who were and, and remember, there were very f- women weren't allowed to run uh, much longer than 800 meters, and even even 800 meters in 1960 at the Olympics was was a a, a very controversial breakthrough. Mm-hmm. So so these two, I ran against these two guys who were in their 30s, and I was 17. Fred Norris, the runner, the the 37 year old, he had a son my age whom I met. <laughs> anyway. I ran with these guys. I surprised them with a long sprint, and they chased me, but I won. And I won with a time that was within three seconds of the then existing world record for two miles. And the place went nuts. The place went nuts. Um, I was this, I didn't think I was frail, but if you read the descriptions, I, I, I was you know, skinny. I had a very awkward arm action. And I was 17 years old running against men in their 30s. And it was like, so it was a big story. It's a big story here. But the outpouring of letters and public statements and media, people who saw me representing Canadian aspirations for greater success in international sport and in everything else, was just overpowering. Overpowering. I, I, I hope I've done a little bit of justice to it in the book by quoting some of the things, uh, but it it um, it showed me instantly that there was an appetite for the kind of ambition that my parents and I held, especially in sport, especially in sport. It it changed me in ways that took a while to fully accept because, I mean, I. Up until then, I thought I was running for myself, my coach, my track club, my teammates, and my family. A very individual and private thing. But it was very clear 
in the winter of 1961 that a very large number of people saw me running for Canada. Uh, and that's before we had a, a decent flag. Uh, you know, all of that, all of that came later. So it was at the very beginning of this kind of resurgence of Canadian uh, nationalism. And the more the Harvard recruiters said, "Why would you, why would you stay in that little backwater?" That was highly motivating, but not in the way they intended. <laughs> Well, Bruce, you come back from this this race in Boston, and uh, again, it's a great retelling in the book. But the next chapter is entitled Canadian Hero, and you really were that, and it sounds like that kind of skyrocketed after that first experience in Boston. And in fact, at the time, um, the then mayor of Toronto, Nathan Phillips, uh, celebrated you at a ceremony, and he told city council that you were, quote, a symbol of Canadian manhood, good sportsmanship, and scholarly excellence. That's that's a lot for anyone to wear, but especially a 17-year-old who's just sort of skyrocketed to fame. And I Did, still have the silver tray where those words are inscribed. So uh, I should have brought it down to pass it around. Beautiful silver tray. Well, one visual we can look to, I'm going to set the microphone down, is in your book there's a fantastic photo section about seven-eighths of the way through. But there's this great illustration of you... <laughs> in your racing kit and you've got your trophies and your books under one arm and you know, all of your accolades and you're kind of stepping on the head of this guy wearing a, I think he's like a no good troublemaker in his skull and crossbones leather jacket. Um, and that really seems to sort of sum up this ideal of, of how the public all of a sudden saw you. Um, what did that feel like to then have that? Uh, I don't know if you felt it as as pressure, but certainly responsibility. How did you How did you see yourself in that potentially new light? Well, it was both. It was a tremendous honor, and it was gratifying. But on the other hand, it was first of all, it was tremendous expectation. You know, to win for Canada every time you stepped on a track. But secondly, uh, at a time when the expectations of what Canada was and whose Canada uh, made this very, you know, very, very difficult. And uh, there were people who held me as the exemplar of a very conservative approach to Canada, you know, uh, ready, I ready, uh, British Canadian uh, nationalism. Uh, so... It took me, and this is a this is a big part of chapter of the second part of this book. Yes, I represent Canada. Uh, yes, I'm very proud to be a Canadian. But what Canadian, what Canada I'm, I'm standing for. And as we've all lived through, that continues to be a debate about who we are, and who do we include, and who have we marginalized, and and not always very well. But I struggle with that all the time. And I, you know, I, I was a representative of Canadian sport and I was a representative of Canadian society. And on both of those fronts, I struggled about the, the values that I would express and represent. And I, I did that in discussions with teammates and classmates and professors at the university and in public debates. And it took me a while, and uh, as you will read, uh, there were some times when, and and there were times when I was very angry about the pressure people put me under, 
And there were times when I was very, I, I, I couldn't handle the, the opportunistic way that some people tried to claim me for their values. And, and that's a big part of my journey. Well, and as you said, that pretty much is the the entire second section of the book, and it carries through through the rest of it. Um, you speak so much about then kind of turning that around and using sport as a platform. And I was just trying to find the exact quote, and I won't, but I know that John Lewis spoke about making good trouble. And it sounds like this is something that you really embodied. Um, there's a, a passage somewhere in there, I think, where you're in high school or university and you're um, on your student council. And you talked about sort of having a mischievous element to yourself, but it was always for a cause. How did that evolution happen? What did that look like in moving into using sport as a platform for launching your, your activism side of yourself? Well, I, I learned it, it didn't happen in a incremental or linear fashion. It happened episodically and in contradictory ways. You know, if I was a representative of Canadian sport, I was concerned that sports leaders and institutions take responsibility for what was wrong in Canadian sport. The horrible fighting in hockey, the, the mindless, mindless abuse and mistreatment of, of, of players, particularly the NHL players who are being lionized every day in the mass media. I mean, I would go to banquets with the Leafs of the 1960s the, the men who won those four Stanley Cups. And, um, and, 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 I, and, and they would, we would have these arguments about amateurism versus professionalism. And they'd say, well, you're a dupe. You're running in all these races in front of these big houses and you're not getting anything. And I'd say, yes, but I'm getting an education and, and people are paying for me to travel around the world. You're getting paid not very much money, and they treat you, uh, and the Leafs treat you like uh, like slaves. You you can't do anything without your permission. And I knew I knew that several of them were spending their summers taking one course at a time at McMaster University under assumed names, uh, because uh, Con Smythe said, "I'll never hire a hockey player who's got more than grade twelve education." So I started to speak out against that. And of course, um, people accused me of being ungrateful. But you know, I learned that I got their attention. And I learned that even though uh, they always called me controversial for years after that, they took what I had seriously. And they would always print what I said. So that was, that was a very big lesson for me. They didn't, they didn't dismiss me. So that was one step, the realization, the realization that, uh, that when I was critical of, uh, of practices in dominant sport, brutality, the exploitation, the, the mistreatment of women, uh, because my teammate Abby Hoffman opened my eyes to what was happening there, the, the racist uh, treatment of Harry Jerome, you know, my teammate, uh, on Canadian teams who competed at Oregon, as as I gradually voiced these things, it hurt that they accused me of being immature, sophomoric, ungrateful. <laughs> but what was really? But I learned that 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 they took me seriously and they still reported what I said, and I got better 
uh, at at saying it in ways that would be more acceptable. So that was one big change that took place over several years. Secondly, as I began doing this, other people who got nowhere asked me to speak out on their behalf. And the the best examples would be uh, the the appeals that Abby and Harry made to say, you know, I mean, we 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 would be delinquent in exactly the same way, and Harry would be bitterly attacked, you know, for stealing beer from the the official's fridge, and uh, and I'd be there, and nobody would mention a word. So I would get away with blue murder, and so we kind of worked out where I would. I would voice some of these concerns in a way that they were pr- protected. And I got, I got pretty good at that too. And gradually that led some people, progressive people, to invite me. I mean, it was, it was, it was the, the era of youth, and there was a real concern that the voice of lots of other young people were saying, listen to us, you know, hear our voices, incorporate our ideas. I mean, the Company of Young Canadians was established in 1965, I think it was. Uh, the Canadian University Service Overseas, where, where, where fellow students uh, like, like Gordon Cressy were creating uh, volunteer programs for Canadian University students to serve overseas. So I wasn't alone in this. I was I was just alone in sports. But thoughtful, reflective leaders, as they were doing in other societies, began to rec- recruit me into leadership positions. And slowly, I, I could take advantage of that, those vantage points to learn and also to, uh, to affect, uh, you know, uh, affect some change. So it, it happened uh, over the course of uh, probably 10 years. And there were some bumps I can tell you, but I gradually learned slowly. And and I learned in these debates that I love sport and didn't want to abolish it. I wanted to reform it. I wanted to make Canadian society better. I didn't want to throw it out or or so that's what I learned. And I came to call that strategy critical support. So I I felt that I if I could make it clear that I loved and was committed to something, and if I could do it in an in appropriate way, I could try to make change that way. And of course, this evolves, and there's many, many stories of your um, intersection between sport and activism and, and social justice movements. And um, a lot of that is highlighted, uh, again, towards uh, the end of the second section and into the third, with your relationship with the Olympic movement. And I know that that's been a complicated one and you highlight several different examples, uh, one of which is really striking and it's about the um, 76 games in Montreal and the successful bid for those games to happen and um, a lot of the controversies that, that came with that. We're in an interesting time to be having this conversation, given that we've just come off a Summer Olympics that was postponed for a year after great pressure from our Canadian Olympic Committee to do so. And now only about two months away from what is probably the most controversial Winter Games uh, in modern history in China with human rights abuses there. This is a difficult question, and I know a lot of it's individual, but given your experience and given the success that you've seen as an athlete advocating for what you think is right, what burden or responsibility do you think current athletes bear 
when it comes to um, standing up and using their platform for social change? Well, I, f- I feel they have a responsibility to do this. I believe that you should take responsibility for anything that you're involved in and certainly any activity to which you devote so much of your life. Uh, that's the easy part. The difficult part is is what to say and what to do. I think it's really important for athletes today to talk to each other uh, about what the issues are and what should be the strategies to address them. And I'm full of admiration of you and the other Canadian Olympians over the last couple of years, uh, whereby under the leadership of Athletes Canada and the the Advisory Council of the Canadian Olympic Committee, you have um, uh, really conducted a pan-Olympic, pan-sport, pan-Canadian discussion to assess where people are at and to come up with, if possible, a consensus on the way forward. And I think that is really, really commendable. I know that in the the debates of the last uh, two, two or so years, about Tokyo, and uh, more recently the debates about Beijing 2022, uh, athletes have have first uh, gotten together through Zoom a lot to 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 canvas opinions, and I think that that uh, what whatever emerges from those discussions should be respected as a genuine a, a genuine consensus among. Uh, uh, among Canadian athletes, and that's the way it should be. Um, I I fear, I, I believe, that even with these steps uh, in the right direction, Canadian athletes in every sport are woefully underrepresented. I believe uh, in the Olympic sports, athletes should make up at least 50% of the votes on all decision-making bodies and 50% of the positions in leadership. And I don't think that's unrealistic at all. And I, I hope that the evidence of responsible leadership that we've seen in the last two years persuades more people to, uh, to agree to that. Um, in some of the things that I've said and written, I've urged Sport Canada to cut off funding for sports bodies that do not give full recognition to athletes' voice in and vote because it's long overdue. Um, one, of, one of my proudest uh, achievements in the 1960s was uh, for four years running out of wherever I, uh, I lived at the time, Canadian participation in the World Student Games in the university at, uh, at, a, at an unusual time, let me say. And, uh, and all of the decisions were made by athletes like me and Abby Hoffman and Bill Crothers and Harry Jerome. And we felt we did just fine. We were prepared to share decision-making with the university administrators, the athletic directors, and so on. But certainly we felt that we uh, had every right to, to play uh, a major role. And, uh, and, and sadly, uh, through the infighting of the 1960s and student politics, that experiment uh, was unsuccessful, but uh, that's the way it should be. And I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll get back to something like that with uh, the thoughtful principal leadership of Canadian athletes today. 
So you talked in the beginning of our conversation about being a little unsure of what you might learn or rediscover in writing this memoir. And I know that you're a very meticulous documentarian of your own life, so I'm sure there was a lot to go through. But I'm wondering what um, was most surprising uh, in, in this process of documenting your life for yourself and for others. I'm not sure it was surprising, but it confirmed how much I love sports. Because uh, I I ran at a time when uh, middle-class university-educated athletes like me were expected to retire from highly competitive sports soon after graduation and, uh, and pursue medicine or the law or a government career or elected public office and continue to play sports on a recreational basis, but not to pursue it seriously. And I set out along that journey. That is for sure. But, uh, and uh, as you will read, I, I, I went to work for government and, and worked in very senior positions uh, for which I uh, remain grateful. I sought a career uh, in public office I uh, sought a journalism career. I, I tried other things, but I always get—I always got pulled back into sport, uh, both because I loved to run, and even if I wasn't able to train two or three times a day anymore, and I was not winning very many races, I loved running hard. I loved uh, plotting and scheming about races and. Uh, and the, the glorious improvisation of running with a group of people uh, in a race, whether you're uh, in the top group or whether you're, you know, 50 runners back uh, in a big race. I love that. I love that. So I couldn't stop. And I, I realized that uh, nothing meant more to me than, than making sport accessible to other people. Uh, I could see that um, I was very privileged to have the opportunities that I had, but uh, sport was not available to all Canadians. And and that's true in class terms and gender terms and racial terms, and that that, uh, that that was wrong. And the Canadian government uh, kept on signing uh, these eloquent international documents promising sport as a basic human right for all people, and doing nothing, repeat nothing, to actually realize that. And increasingly putting more and more voices into high-performance sport, which I'd also called for, and uh, but taking the money away from broadly-based uh, sport and recreation programs. So uh, it became even more skewed towards high-performance and away for sport for all. And I felt it was important to fight that fight. My mother always said, if you love something, teach it to a friend. And uh, I thought there was that saying was, was more relevant to sport than any other field that I knew. And I, I, I'd always liked politics. And so I realized that I had a knack for sport politics. And um, mostly as a volunteer, threw myself into that and it opened up one opportunity after another off after another. 
I ran for public office and I was defeated, sadly to say. And uh, that was a bitter disappointment. But uh, given the sport politics I had done up to that point, people offered me jobs teaching uh, courses on sport at, at York and at the University of Toronto. Uh, in the early 1970s, it was a time when uh, universities were moving away from mandated curricula to uh, more uh, more liberal. Uh, students choose their own courses, and they needed courses to make some disciplines like political science accessible. So why not a course on the politics of sport? And so they decided to try it out in 1970, and they hired me because of what had gone on in the previous five years to teach it. And those courses were uh, sold out or oversubscribed right away, and I, I fell into uh, what became uh, a real career. So um, this journey, uh, which was completely unplanned, had a very happy ending. Well, and I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. I think we could keep talking for hours, but I also want to open the floor up to some questions. But first, I just want to thank Bruce so much for sharing not only his book and his journey, but his voice with us tonight. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Lynn Bork and the amazing staff at The Runner Shop for hosting the first live recording of the ShakeOut podcast. Thanks to the community members who came out to attend our taping. And of course, thank you to Bruce Kidd for sharing his story and his passionate voice with us. You can find A Runner's Journey online or in your local bookstore just in time for the holidays. You can find us online at ShakeOut Podcast. Subscribe to our show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying our content, please consider leaving us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll chat again soon.